0: The stories of the Bible never allow a small God, do they? That's why you can never grow as a Christian, never persevere as a Christian with your Bible closed. (laughs) Every time you open the Scriptures, every time you open the Word of God, there's a hand grenade that goes off in any idea of a God of the hills. It is blows the idea to, to smithereens of, of of a or of, of any hostility that could potentially threaten the people of God in the midst of God's omnipotency and His covenant promises to His people. And the goal of reading these stories this morning is is the goal of every time when we open the scriptures. It, it's, it's not just to have our minds affected, but to have our hearts affected with the glories of our Lord, the glorious reality of God's nature, that we would both grow and persevere as a Christian wherever it is that God is calling you to have an enlarged heart for God today. Dear God, give us our daily bread. The scripture that comes to my mind is, I read how God helps a faithless people and a worthless king. And it, it, there's, the nice thing about stories is that there's surprises in the text, isn't there? There's, there's quite a few things in this story as you read it and go, really? <laughs> like, for the appearance of a prophet, And you think, oh boy, Ahab's in trouble. Now, if you've been following along in this story, you think, okay, here comes the word of of destruction. But one of the great surprises of the text is a prophet comes alongside a worthless king, a Baal kissing king who is leading a faithless people. And it says, Do you see this horde? I'm going to give them into your hands today. I'm going to give them into your hands. The text that comes to my mind in reading this story is 2 Kings 2.13. If we are faithless, how many of you know this? If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's a wondrous expounding of that New Testament text the stories of two wars. One of them is near Damascus, which is north of Jerusalem. We've had maps in the past to show you... Sorry, near Samaria. One of them is near Samaria, and the other one is further north of Samaria in a place called Aphek, which is just east of the Sea of Galilee. And through these wars, God makes it plain, also by his prophets, that he is sufficiently large sufficiently large, sufficiently powerful, sufficiently faithful to take care of any hostility that God's people face. In fact, God is jealous for that idea. The story is all about, can you just imagine the perplexity in heaven? Oh, he's a God of the hills. <laughs> and his drunken king in his stupor saying, Ben-Hadad says this, Ben-Hadad says that. And the response of the prophets is, well, here's a voice that actually matters. Thus says the Lord. I am jealous for my reputation. What do people think about the maker of heaven and earth? And I'm going to act and I'm going to show you that you would know that I am the Lord. God is jealous for that. And that's what this story shows. The main point, I think, is this, that God is, is just that, that God is jealous for his name, the Lord. That just so much hangs on just those two words in the scriptures, don't they? But all of the stories of the scriptures expound those two words, the Lord is the Lord. And God here takes Takes center stage. There's, there's no Elijah in this story. I mean, this is the, a series supposedly on the prophet Elijah, but it's not, is it? It's a series on God. This isn't a story about Elijah or Elisha or about Ahab even. It's a, it's a story about God. And, and, and even the prophets, they're unnamed. They're not even given a name because the, the, the idea that God wants to get across transcends any individual in the story. And god takes center stage to leave the reader in no doubt about his glorious name (laughs) stories have wonderful power there's three gods really in this particular story there's first of all the god of the syrians the god of the hills a kind of regional god the kind of god that you can just change the scene, and, and God disappears. The kind of God where you can say, well, he, he's here, but he's, he's not there. And then there's the God of Ahab. The God of Ahab is a, a, is a kind of a genie God, a kind of, of God that just, you rub the lamp in it, and it comes out when you need him. Really, really conveniently sometimes to have a God. A God of convenience. It's nice to have on your side when you're in trouble and then say, well, you know, Lord, I'm really glad to have you right now. That's a really big army. I don't have a clue what I'm going to do. But when things are good and that army is defeated, it's like, boy, I think I'll do whatever suits my pleasure. That's the God of Ahab. And then there's the God of the prophets. The God of the prophets who is... The Lord Who over and over says through the prophets, You shall know that I am the Lord. And see that did you notice the contrasting, the the echoing going on in the text of, of the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord And Ben-Hadad saying, thus says Ben-Hadad. And the reader is left to see the ridiculousness of the drunken stupor of a king who has the nerve to boast against a living God and say, thus says Ben-Hadad, against the things and the purposes and the people of God. from the story I'll bring three simple points. The first one is this is that God's influence and presence is not limited to one sphere of life. The second one is this is that his methods leave no room for boasting. These are universal truths that are true in the gospel as well. And the stories that we read here are are stories that foreshadow and begin to fill the imagination with the story that will come definitively in Christ. The third point is that God's grace and his mercies create responsibility in those to whom it is given. Things, three things that I think are very, very plain in the story. The first one is that the Syrians imagined God as a God of the hills, and the, the, the problem with that sentence is the word imagine. Our imaginations don't create gods. They think they create things that we worship, (laughs) but our imagination doesn't actually create any realities. God is as he is, not as we imagine him. But they had this idea that God was a God of the hills. And if we just change the scene, if we just change the situation, if we just, if we just go over here, then then God's power will not be experienced or evident. The divine presence will, will go away. And of course, I love the words of the psalmist. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Stories have a unique way of exerting a powerful influence, don't they? More than ideas and talking about abstract things, and really these are abstract thoughts that I'm talking about, about the reality of God and and what God is like and His divine presence. They're, They're abstract ideas, but stories have a powerfully unique way of informing our imagination about those realities. That's why I believe that there's uh, this interesting relationship in our culture that goes on between storytelling and actual governance. To the place now where those who create the stories of our culture are shaping our culture. And those that are creating laws in our country are creating laws according to the stories that the people have been told. In other words, Hollywood has more influence than Washington, D.C. It's the power of stories. And here's the idea in this story that God puts into our head. It doesn't matter what sphere of creation you are in. We are fools to deny God's influence, God's presence, and God's power. That is why the proverbs can say in all of your ways, <laughs> not in some of your ways, not in some of your thinking, not in some of your behavior, but but in in all of your ways, a- acknowledge him. I I read that particular text from Proverbs chapter three on one of the a wall of one of our seniors this this week it was in a institution visiting him and and noticed on the wall this framed proverb Proverbs chapter three and. He said, of all of the things in my house that I've just downsized from, that was the one thing that I wanted, Proverbs 3.6. Made me think later that day as I was hauling stuff into my house. (laughs) Everything I haul in, somebody else is going to have to haul out of here. (laughs) God cannot be compartmentalized. When you leave here today, there's no sphere of influence that that you will have, that God will give to you or that you could find anywhere in this place. Where can I go from your presence, O Lord? where you can either ignore or doubt God's presence. And sometimes we do both of those things. I do both of them. I either ignore it or doubt it. You simply cannot say that, well, he is a God of the church, but he's not a God of politics. He's a God of the church, but not a God of philosophy. Or of education, or of entertainment, or of family, or or of ethics, or of science, or of sex, or of moral behavior, or of, or of anything else. It just doesn't make any sense to believe in a regional god. Either he's God or he's not. It doesn't mean that the. Syrians were were without reason. and They had tremendous reason. They, they, They had really bad theology, but they had really good reason. You know, let's get all these kings out of the way and let's put in some serious commanders. In other words, let's have a a proper chain of command. Let's get our chariots out of the places where we know they're going to be destroyed. Let's get them up in the places where we know that they will be effective. Let's do all of the things that we know that we can do. It doesn't mean that they were stupid people. They had very good logic, very good reasoning, such as many things in the world today have very good logic, very good reasoning, but the danger of it is that it was in a God vacuum. And that is why it was self-destructive, not because it was necessarily lacking in logic or in reason, but it lacked the acknowledgment of God. Of course, that's just the negative side. The positive side is this, is that everywhere that we go in this world, we can talk about God. It doesn't, I prayed earlier about every, every linguistic boundary, every geographic, every cultural boundary that, that there is. There is no place in this world that we can't go and confidently proclaim the same truth. Because there is no sphere in which God is not the same Lord. Secondly, that God's methods leave no room for boasting. It's so obvious in this story. There's just no way that the, the, the people who do stand up and say, well, you know, I'm kind of in control here. <laughs> they look ridiculous because they are ridiculous. And it's true of God's ways through. we Remember back in the book of Corinthians, we went over this over and over. We're like, Who do you think you are? What are you boasting about? What do you have that God has not given to you? God's methods always are in such a way that leave no room for human boasting. That's what the cross, of course, is all about also. But again, the power of story here. If there had just been one battle with with a word from a prophet, then Ahab could have perhaps persuaded himself to think that he was pretty great. But there's not just one battle. There's two battles, and the second battle more dramatic than the first. And we're left no doubt about who is in charge here and whose prisoner King Hadad actually is. And that's another part of the, the shocking part of the story, of when Ahab just kind of takes control over what is clearly God's prisoner, boasting against the Lord, cursing. You know, <laughs> when Tony started to read this story, that the, the, the curse, you know, these people know how to curse. Like, (laughs) you read the curses that they have. May you be uh, like the dust of the ground. And Ahab himself points out the boasting of this king. Saying, you ought not to do that. It's a very, very familiar storyline in the scriptures. And as it was read, perhaps you felt the familiarity of it. God's people are threatened by an innumerable horde. And then a prophet appears. It might be Moses against Pharaoh. It might be Joshua in the, around the cities of Jericho. And there's echoes of Jericho here with walls falling down. It might be Gideon and the Amalekites. Or it might be David and Goliath. Or it might be Deborah and Jabot. Or it might be Jesus and the devil. But it's a familiar story. God's people threatened by a far superior, or seemingly from a worldly perspective. And God's people faced with weakness. And a prophet shows up to announce that God would fight for them. For them. He would do the work. He would do the conquering. He'll give you the victory. It's a very, very familiar story. And even as Israel is here described as a little flock of goats. I mean, isn't that a great picture? In front of an, an innumerable horde. Isn't that a beautiful thing that just comes into your imagination, you can picture yeah, I know what a flock of goats looks like. I mean, we can, we can go on and on and talk about abstract ideas about God's power. But you know what a little flock of goats looks like in front of an innumerable horde. But at no point in the story are you, are you worried in your imagination and your thought to say, oh, no, oh, no, they're going to get annihilated, I just know it, poor little flock of goats. No. You read the story and you think, oh, boy. They're a little flock of goats, but look out, you innumerable horde. It all has to do with proclaiming the glory of the Lord. My favorite part of the story is how God intervenes in the actual actual words and character and behavior and attitudes of, of, of the King Haydad. You remember when the story, part of the story where it says, and, and if they are out coming out for war, then, then take them alive. Or if they're coming out for peace, then take them alive. And he thought, that makes no sense. You're right. It makes absolutely no sense. The king was in a, a drunken stupor in his tent. And these army maybe lost the war because their king had given them instructions, whether they're for war or for peace, which would be all of them, no matter what the case, don't kill them. How do you fight a war when your king has said, don't kill them? And you can just imagine him in his tent, and it wouldn't have been appropriate to read it this way, but I'm sure the words came out, if they're for peace, then let them live. If they're for war, then they were, he was drunk. In every part of the story, you can see God intervening. See, God's methods don't make us feel like we are in control. God's methods never make us feel like we are in control. Rather, they make us confident that God is in control. There's no room for boasting, but there's also no room for fear. We too, God's church, we're like a little flock of goats, aren't we? marvel at these words in Revelation, it describes the influence of the beast and the Antichrist. And it it says that God allows them to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and people. It's shocking. Every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell in the earth. why the book of Revelation is written, is because the seven churches felt and looked like little flocks of goats on the earth. And all they have is a lamb who looked like it had been slain, who's in heaven and all heaven worshiping as a glorious one who has all authority and power. The third point is this, that when God acts on behalf of his people, it It creates responsibility. Ahab had no concept of Romans chapter 12, 1 that says, On account of these mercies, brothers, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And all of the evidence that all that God had done, there was no repentance in Ahab, only a vexed sullenness and in a way that is reminiscent of Nathan, another part of the story that's reminiscent of something that's familiar to us that's gone on before. Remember Nathan confronting David, David thundering his own judgment upon himself because of Nathan's story. This prophet also speaks in the same way to Ahab, using the story of a prophet who was slain, a prophet who was killed by a lion, which itself is an echo of something that happened earlier in the book, in chapter 13, of another prophet who disobeyed the word of the Lord and and was killed and mauled by a lion. And David, or sorry, Ahab is confronted for his treason. This man had boasted against God's people, this man had said, Ben-Hadad hey, thus, Ben-Hadad hey, thus, Ben-Hadad hey, thus. And God had handed a blasphemer and an enemy of God's people into his hand and devoted him to destruction. And there's another shocking part of the story, isn't it? You're reading along and you think, "Well, oh, he's my friend. I mean, imagine reading the story of David and Goliath. David had just knocked Goliath out and gone up and woke him up and said, Hey, let's be friends. (laughs) No, he was the devoted enemy of God, given over to the destruction of God's people. Not to be made peace with. Jesus didn't come into the world to make peace with the devil or with sin. He came into the world to conquer sin. And the devil. And give us the victory. Ahab wasn't being magnanimous in calling Hadad hey, friend. He was being deceived. You chuckle as you read. It's like, how can you be so stupid? These people are totally taking advantage of you. But everything that Ahab did was calculated not for God's glory. It was calculated for self. His God was a genie God. I need you now. I don't need you now. Even when he was threatened at the beginning of, of, I'm going to come, Ben-Hadad says, I'm going to come and and, and do this and that. and, And Ahab calculated that, hmm, I think that I can let him have that. And not be affected too much personally. Even a lot of people in my nation will lose their wives and everything they have. Everything about Ahab. It's a tremendous picture of the strength of the cult of self. Of why Jesus didn't just come into this world to be our helper. He came in to be a savior of something that we are completely helpless to. When the grace of God comes into our life. And it saves us from ourselves. And it overcomes our foolishness, and our own propensity to selfishness and the love of pleasure. There was a, a nation above Syria called Assyria that within 20 to 30 years would come down and destroy both Syria and Israel. Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmazer, the Assyrian kings that within two generations would completely wipe out both of these nations. But Ahab, in his calculations, probably thought, if I can make friends with Hadad, I will have a buffer. (laughs) In other words, it was all about him, but I will have a buffer. Assyria is a bigger nation, a bigger threat, and I need a pawn in between. But the point of the story is completely lost on Ahab. The point of the story is, isn't how, how big of an enemy is your enemy. How, how many people can God destroy? The point is that it doesn't matter how great the hostilities are against God's people. Trust me. Trust me. Worship me. I'll take care of you. Even against Assyrians. And Ahab learns this lesson. Neglect my word at your peril. Let me point out a very practical lesson here. Sometimes we try to make peace with the various things that Jesus Jesus came to conquer that he suffered for and died on a cross in order to pay the debt and the price for those things that are enemies of our soul to lead us to destruction. And sometimes we try to make peace with them. And when a Christian tries to make peace with the things that are themselves Impossible to make peace with. In other words, in their whole intention and purpose are bent towards our destruction and our harm as God's people. It doesn't go well for us. And there's a wonderful, not a wonderful, a very clear, unavoidable picture of what it looks like in the individual who tries to make peace with a thing that God is devoted to destruction. It makes you miserable because you can't have the thing that you want. And the thing that you choose to trust in can't offer the thing that it's telling you it will give you. And it makes you miserable. When was the last time you were sullen? I'm sullen once in a while. eh? I hate it. Let me point out the obvious. When you're sullen, you're not really nice to be around. It destroys the capacity for Intimacy and it puts its finger on something in our heart, that there's something that we want that we can't have, often that thing is an idol. And the proper response to solemnness isn't just to go home. The proper response is repentance. I don't know how often I've had to go in the course of my life and say, I'm sorry, I've been foolish. It's not one of those things that you just shake it off, sleep it off, and everything's fine the next day. It's something that needs repentance. To say, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? All of these stories, as I said earlier, tell the same story. which Jesus came to tell definitively. Jesus came to reveal the same thing that the prophets speak of in this passage. A God who is not a regional God, but a heavenly Father, who is not a small God or limited. And Jesus in his work showed over and over again every sphere in which he walked in, every sphere in which he touched, in which people lived, that he had authority and power over all of those things. And he saved us in a way on the cross through his own weakness leaving no room for any boasting in any human strength or merit. And he's also taken possession of the people that he has shown mercy to that our every breath belongs to him. Would you please stand with me and we will close with singing. I'm going to read Psalm 93 just before we sing that last song but if you would please stand for for this and then we'll we'll sing psalm 93 says the lord reigns he is robed in majesty the lord is robed and he has put on strength as his belt the world is established it shall never be moved lord help us i pray to lay hold Of your majesty that you robe yourself in. Pray it in Jesus' name.